RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. You might have seen the story right at the end of May, um, and I'm reading from stuff. Daisy the Great White Shark, Daisy. Daisy the Great White Shark goes missing, then so does her tracking tag. And we go into the first bit of the story, and they tell us that Daisy went missing after her satellite tracking tag fell off and washed up on a Tauranga beach. Marine biologist Dr. Riley Elliott is using the tags to track the sharks, Daisy being one of them, as part of a research project that aims to answer three questions. And we'll ask about those three questions are uh, as we chat to him. So welcome, marine biologist Dr. Riley Elliott to RCR. Nice to have you. Kia ora, Paul. Kia ora. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, Daisy, what a name for a shark, eh? Yeah. Um, Daisy, what sort of age are we talking about? Female shark, obviously, with a name like that. And what's yeah. it doing hang around the uh, Tauranga area? Yeah, well, I mean, Daisy's part of a greater project called the Great White Project. <laughs> and um, look, this popped up because uh, basically Great White Sharks started populating a super popular holiday hotspot called the Bay of Plenty, in particular, you know, the Tauranga Harbour area where I'm sure a lot of listeners here go on summer holiday. and Yeah, I, I used but, to live there, swam there all the time, never gave it a thought. No, and like we know there's sharks in the ocean and, and we see it on the, on the front page of the paper every summer and it's always the bronze whaler, you know, just doing its thing, but it's a shark, so we all freak out. Um, but kind of the game changed when all of a sudden those weren't bronze whalers and they were great white sharks. And, you know, I live in Tairua. You know, I grew up in Hamilton and, and going out to those beaches in Tauranga and... And, you know, there has been no precedence for great white sharks in this area before. So when a girl was fatally killed in 2021, that kind of really, you know, forced the, the issue onto my radar. And um, the, the summers following that, there were more and more great white encounters, luckily not fatal. Um, so I, you know, it took two years for Doc to give me a permit, which is its own issue, but I got there in the end. And and the way we learn about these sharks, about understanding them, is through satellite tracking. So yeah. we put tags on them. It's very non-invasive, and basically it means we can follow them around where they go. And that's that's become very topical in the public interest and in modern media. Um, yeah, I've been looking at the Facebook page and, and looking at the tracks of, of some of them. It's fascinating. Oh, it's incredible. It becomes addictive. Every morning before <laughs> I read the paper, I read that now, and I see where they are. And, and so long story short... The goal was, and the public have been amazing at this, is, is because they funded the tags and they got to name the tags. And this brings us to Daisy, which is named after a lovely Hahe woman. Ah, uh, there's a story behind that. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the great thing. Like, I did this through my PhD, which was sharks aren't a, a commodity in fisheries as such. So therefore, there's no interest in fisheries funding the science of them. So this is why megafauna research is quite rare in this country because marine science is driven by fisheries funding, basically. So I can catch more or do more, yeah. you know. And sell it. Yeah, Yeah, basically. Like, it's a business at the end of the day. So um, I use the model of the public engaging and, and funding because they cared about these animals. And, and that's what's been really successful with the Great Whites. So we got 20 satellite tags, which are 4000 bucks a pop, to be funded by the public. Wow. And, and this wasn't okay. corporates. This was like every day you and me which is amazing so this Grass lady roots yeah this lady jane mowbray sponsored daisy and named it after her tractor which she used to use to took the vote down on the you know massey ferguson and anyway there's great stories behind all these but um these tags do come off the sharks we've had successful tracking for six months of these sharks over summer which has provided some super novel insight and that's another story but you can you can go on the app it's free 
uh, online at sustainableoceansociety.co.nz and follow them. But the tags do come off because they're just tethered with a dart and a, and a nylon, a steel trace to what's like a mini blimp which floats behind them. And when the shark surfaces, it hits a satellite, tells us where it is. But okay, yeah. with all the floods, there's been, you know, an unprecedented amount of debris. We've seen the damage slashes done to bridges. Well, imagine that out in the ocean where it's usually void of this stuff. And some of these tags get caught on it at times and yeah. come yeah. off. But luckily, uh, like with Daisy's one, when they came off, there's been such public interest in this that hundreds and hundreds of people have gone out on the beaches when they come off and help me find them. So Great. That is the story of this, and it enables us to put the tag back out on, on someone like Daisy to keep that popularity going back. How did you become the shark man? It's, it's funny because my wife asked me that the other day, and ironically, I was at university studying dolphins in Dunedin, where there's a lot of, you know, there's sharks. No one really knows much about it. The last shark attack there was in 64. But um, a friend of mine just started calling me the shark man, and I think it's because... I can't put my finger on the pulse of it, but I started getting an interest in sharks as a surfer because I was understandably afraid of them. And then I saw a shark when I was in Doubtful Sound. It was a foot long, but I absolutely shat myself and peed my wetsuit. And, you know, I had the, jo- I had the Jaws education like most of our generation yeah. have. Yeah, you could hear the music and, playing. Yeah, and, and I realized, wow, I really judged that book by the cover. So um, I went to South Africa on an internship to learn about the great white shark. I mean, here I was a budding marine biologist and, and I just shot myself after a one foot shark swam out to me because I knew nothing about them. So yeah, I went to South Africa and I came back with all this, this knowledge, this bug, you know, of wanting to learn about the more. And, and that's where one of my friends called me the shark man. It's kind of stuck ever since. It's not a novel name. You think more of my colleagues in this world would have it, but it's it's stood out and um well i guess it's been deserved i've spent the last 25 years studying them and uh got a phd in them and yeah i've swum with every shark on earth and i'm still here and now you know my goal is to to communicate to the public you know what what sharks stand for what they're about why they're important and uh primarily the fact they haven't had a voice through no. a, a persecution of the jaws era which means we only have 30 percent of the world's sharks left that, that's interesting the effect of the jaws movie really what you're saying was not good for the sharks no i them mean in a, a particular villainous role and that's what every everyone comes away from the theater thinking and and that's what everyone thinks yeah well it was it's funny because I, I do school talks in, in alignment with mazda and we go around and educate about the environment and what it does and sharks are the backbone to that that story and and i start the show off with who likes sharks and all the kids put their hands up none of the teachers do and and, and then I showed, That's why. <laughs> I showed two different pictures. The first picture is all the Finding Nemo sharks, which are all smiley and cool and fish yeah. our friends. And then I show the picture of Jaws and all the kids laugh at it. And so, but we, at when we were kids, Steven Spielberg, you know, made the most fantastic movies that were so believable and great. Yeah. Kids these days laugh at it. So it's the equivalent of the boogeyman for the adult. And what I try and do with sharks is, is just like with a kid, you know, you show the adult that the boogeyman isn't actually under there. In fact, this is an animal that keeps the oceans alive, doesn't eat people for a living. And if we persecute them and continue to do it and lose them, we literally lose not only food uh, and other ecosystem services in the ocean, but the very oxygen we breathe. You know, half of it comes wow. from the sea. So 
Yeah. I teach kids this because they are such a power source when it comes to converting adult perception, like with seatbelts, with drink driving, smoking. Been there. (laughs) Yeah. So I tell the kids to go home and challenge their parents and educate their parents. And, and yeah, it's quite funny to have to go that way around. But Peter Benchley, who wrote Jaws, the book, he said he wished he never wrote it because it created the persecution for decades, which, you know, resulted in the huge endangerment of these animals, which are critical to the ocean health. Humans, eh? Mm. Yeah, mate. Anything we're afraid of, you know, yeah. yeah. Deal to it. Okay. The great white shark. I can see why it has that name. I have never been up close to a great white. I've seen plenty of video of them. Uh, you, You mentioned South Africa. There's stunning video of them sort of like going right out of the water and all that sort of stuff. And obviously the news reports that we get from time to time here. Though I can look at it and I understand that this is a work of art in nature. Do you, do you agree with that? You couldn't say it any better, to be frank. It is, it is the longest existing animal on earth. And, wow. and, and with that has come a perfection of evolution, you know, to the point where we steal so much technology off these animals, like the year, the swimming Olympics, smashed all the records because they mimicked the swimming suits, those full body suits off of Marco shark skin, the fastest fish in the sea. And, um, and then they banned them because they were too fast. <laughs> and now the poor buggers who swim have to compete with that precedence. But there's so many things we use uh, their skin for like sterilizing uh, the, the, the surfaces of surgical equipment, you know, because sharks never accumulate bacteria or parasites as such. So there's so much that they are perfect at. And, and the biggest thing, other than just morphologically, you know, the way that they are perfection, while we design airplanes after them, for example, um, the, the bigger thing is their perfect ecosystem role they play. And it's not just the great white, you know, mm. it's at the ecosystem role of the apex predator for the food chain of, say, seals down to fish, down to, you know, crustaceans. But you've got tiny little dogfish on the bottom of the deep sea that also have their own niche, which they're the top dog of. And the important point of that is if you take off that top card in the house of cards, they all start falling down. Mm. And that is, that is why these animals are so important because they've been around for so long. They have gotten very good at their job, as I say to kids. And that is basically eating stuff that is weak, sick, or overpopulated and it keeps everyone else in check so they are the perfect animal primarily because they've been around longer than any other but because they play a very important role that without it we get what's called a trophic cascade which is you know lower trophic levels of animals and organisms start overpopulating eating out their food source and then ultimately all declining Mm. and i suppose if you lower the population like we were just talking about before you, you get all the consequences of that. And maybe yeah. that's being rebalanced now. We can talk about that. I'm still interested in the design of this creature. So take yeah. us from the tail to the tip of the, what, snout? Do they, is it nose? Yeah. Snout? Yep, snout. Uh, what are, if we're looking at it as a machine, though, that's, yeah. you know, that's a bit degrading for them, though, more than that. But yeah. what are the design features of the machine? Totally. Well, firstly, uh, they are... They're one of four sharks in a family um, called the lamnidid sharks, which are actually quasi warm blooded. And that's, you know, it doesn't exist in the fish families um, and, and not many of the shark ones either. So 
why they are warm-blooded is because they have to fuel a brain which is very calculated for ambush hunting. Um, and in order to turn on speed in an instant to catch difficult prey like a seal or for the Marco shark catching marlin and swordfish, um, they need to be able to turn on instant energy and you can only do that if you're quasi-warm-blooded. In contrast, a snake has to sit on a rock to warm up in order to start its day. Um, so the great white has this, and it, it's a very, it's a very cool blood circulatory system, similar to ours, where basically it's like a radiator in a car. It, it stops its warm internal blood going out to its external blood systems to retain heat. And, uh, that is so it can drive not only its brain at the front, but it's, it's tail. They, they have what's called a caudal keel and it's this big chunky bit of like hard tissue where the basically the body joins the tail flap. And if it didn't have that, when they accelerate, they just snap off. And the great white, the marker shark, the salmon shark, and the poor beagle shark all have this because they all hunt these very difficult to catch kind of pieces of prey. Um, you run up through the body of the shark, then you've got what is the, the, the liver, which is a, a quarter of the body weight of a shark. And this is common throughout most, but the great white especially. And that is so big because sharks don't have a storm bladder, which, which fish do, which keeps buoyancy control. Uh, sharks have oils in these livers and that's what they use for buoyancy control, but it's also what humans exploit them for, for shark, you know, fish oil mm. tablets, for example. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's what orca have exploited some great whites for. Um, you move up the shark and you get into its pectoral fins and it's, it's, it's a fighter jet, you know, but it can go into glide mode, but ultimately can also pull those down, use them to pivot to catch hard to catch prey. Uh, you move into the gill system, five slits most sharks have. This is how they capture oxygen out of the um, out of the water they move through, but they have to move through it in order to catch that. If you have a shark sitting in the water still, it can't breathe unless there's small reef sharks, which have learned how to. Uh, you come into the eyes of the shark and, and, and sharks just see in shades of green. They don't see color, but they don't see black and white. They're all about contrast. And that is how they hunt something on the surface through green water um, versus say like the marker shark, which hunts in perfectly clear water. It has some of the best eyesight in the world for it. Um, you get to the nose of the great white. People say I can smell a drop of blood in an Olympic sized swimming pool. It's not correct in the way we say that. They can't smell a drop at one end of the pool if they're at the other. It's like a scent trail you see in a Disney movie, you know, where someone puts a pie out on Yeah, the, and the little you know, the line pool. comes wafting yeah, out. Yeah, and you got to walk into that line, and then you can follow it. So they can follow and determine which direction a scent is coming from at that type of dilution, being one drop of blood in an right. Olympic-sized swimming pool. That's, that's a sensitive. That's still amazing sensitivity, right? Amazing sensitivity. Was that one but, part per million? Or yeah, oh, per billion. Uh, you'd think yeah. one drop versus pool. Yeah, I don't know yeah. what the math is on that, but... What is cool, we've done tests where we've jumped in the water with uh, human blood, which we've taken out of my friend, and uh, fish blood. And they don't react to human blood as we would not react to a snail. Oh, so they've, they've, they've got a program sort of or, or onboard, um, what, what would it be, uh, markers that they or markers that they know how to, to read. Yeah, they can recognize. You don't want to waste energy chasing something you don't know, right? Exactly, exactly. Like we wouldn't chase a food source that we wouldn't associate as being a food source. So that comes down to their teeth, even in their gums. When they bite into a person, in the rare occasion they do, they have fat receptors in their gums that can tell, oh, this isn't the fatty, blubbery seal I thought it was. 
this is some weird other thing that's bony and, and hitting me in the face right now. And yeah. so that's why 98% of great white attacks, the shark never comes back. Um, okay, so they put the bite in, detect that it doesn't have the energy that they need, let's say. Yeah. And yeah. so no point going any further. No. See you later. Yeah. We, we talk about them as the perfect – you've seen machine before. They, they are to an extent. They're, they're not empathetic and emotional like an orca. You know, they are a, a, a highly evolved machine, so to speak, because they're so perfect at everything that they do almost that they're machine-like. Um, and, they, and they don't, you know, most of them socially, you know, can, uh, interact that much. They, they're quite solo. They're big migrators. And they base entirely off of, um, you know, instinct. There's no teaching in sharks, so to speak, you know, no right. parental guidance. So I guess, you know, come to the brain of the shark you know it's an incredibly intelligent animal like we think we're smart but it migrates entire oceans we yeah. have to use a, a compass or an app or something you know we have no idea how they do it um a, a baby great white is born at three to four feet long and knows how to migrate you know without any parental influence yeah, there, so, there must be something on board though that that gives them um directional control right to know where you're going so there has to be something to explain that magnetic or or yeah. some other process. Yeah. Well, I guess that takes you to the tip of their nose where they do have electroreceptors, which we know they can detect small electrical stimuli from, say, like a, a stingray under sand. Um, but they do have the ability to detect electrical signals. And, and much like we assume salmon do, uh, use the Earth's electromagnetic poles to help them navigate. Yeah. But well. equally, there's theories in science that they might be using celestials, you know, star cues, and come up to the surface and look at the sky. I mean, that's how we did it in the start. So... To be honest, shark science is very juvenile, largely because of what I said earlier, that they're megafauna that aren't a, generally a money-making industry. And uh, therefore, there's been very little science other than intrigue towards them. How do they onboard the prey then? We see the big teeth and those sort of gums that seem to sort of come out like some sort of guillotine or something like that, um, a separate kind of mechanism working there. And, you know, you see the shots of them with their mouths wide open. and It's like a cavernous tunnel in there. So what do they just bite and and, and how do they get it in? And, and is it all just in, in as big a chunks as they can get in? Is that how it works? Well, every shark species has teeth designed specifically to the prey it eats. Right. So, for example, a tiger shark has teeth shaped like a can opener because it cuts through turtle shells. Uh, a mako shark, when they're small, have needle-like teeth to capture fish that move quickly. But then as they get bigger, they hunt and have to sever the tails off swordfish in one hit. So their teeth triangulate more like, like a, a white shark's tooth, which is, is made for cutting through big blubbery fat, things like seals and dead whales. Um, but each shark has a distinctive array of teeth. And that is how we actually do identify when there are shark bites, uh, what type of shark it was that did it. So they, they have very specialized cutting mechanisms set up for exactly what they hunt. Right. And how long do they go between feeding? Can they sort of take in a whole huge amount of calories in one go and go for a good long period of time um, without having to hunt again? Or are they on the go all the time? They are always on the go all the time because food is, is work for them. That's how they survive. They've got nothing else to do, really. That's, that's yeah. the, the goal of most animals and, other than breeding. Um, but a, a shark can generally go up to say six weeks without food. Um, but they will eat until the point of when them spewing up and regurgitating it and start eat again. 
um, right. because they, they never know when their next meal will be. Um, yeah. But they are a, a super efficient uh, mechanism, again, as I said earlier. So they have what's called a spiral valve in their intestine. It makes it uh, the most efficient intestine in the world that what they poo out is literally a fine powder. You know, you compare it to say oh, so they any use other- every every bit of they suck out everything from the prey. Yeah. So so we pass a meal within a, you know a day or two. They uh, digest it over weeks, and what that does oh. is yeah, like you say, get every single bit of nutrients out of it to the point that their poo is literally a fine powder, and and that's so incredible. That's why they are so efficient. Okay. Is there differences between the male and female? personalities of the great white definitely uh I, I to be honest it's quite comparative to, to human society you know okay. and, and like just to pigeonhole things here you know women have thicker skin they're a bit more like thinker on thinking on the higher level for the greater good and just deal with the shit that males kind of throw at them all the time and that it's pretty much what happens in the shark world but in the shark world they're smart enough uh, to they just avoid each other it's called sexual segregation they avoid each other oh, until okay. they actually have to come together to copulate. Um, and they kind of do that as well because their sex is a lot rougher than ours. Um, they don't have arms. They don't have beds. So the male comes in <laughs> and, and bites into the female's neck and then spins himself around. And in fact, they have two penises because he doesn't know which side he'll come from. Wow. And uh, yeah, so they get like a sideways erection that they whip around and Somehow, get it's the holy grail of shark uh, of, of any natural history filmmaking is trying to film great whites doing that. We've seen smaller yeah. sharks and aquariums do it, but um, you all we see is the big aftermath. The females have these huge, big wounds on their gills, but as said, they have seven times thicker skin than males for that defense reason. Oh, okay, that's the, that's why the thicker skin's there. That's okay. the thicker skin. Yeah, so they're literally like we would give society pigeonholes. Like they have thicker skin than the males. Armored they, plating in that area. Kind of. Yeah, they're the they're the dominant uh, gender. You know, they they will generally come in and dominate the males, and they're also bigger because they have to carry pups. Um, and I think they're just a bigger personality. But when we swim with them and see them, the females are always kind of the the gracious one. You know, the, like I said, thinking on a bit of a higher level. The yeah. males are, you know, running into each other and just trying to jostle. It's very much a bar scene, literally. <laughs> and um, and their body language is very similar. I would say the kids, when I speak at the kids' schools, shark body language is Jake the Muss off Once Were Warriors. Like, right. yeah. you know, you puff your chest, you put your arms down, you puff, get your teeth out and your eyes big. It's literally what sharks do. So, um, yeah, there's there's a lot of parallel specifics, but uh, also a lot we could learn from them. Yeah. And how long do they live? It's uh, it's a question again, quite juvenile in science. We just know from the ones we catch dead or, or kill. You know, like for example, great whites were thought to live to thirty-five, which is a very juvenile thing, um, because then we eventually found a dead one that was seventy-three. I think it was a seventy-two. Um, but as an example, well, wasn't there a shark found in Sweden or Norway or up in the? Uh... Arctic yeah, Circle yeah. that was 400 years old. I was just about to say that. So you got species like the Greenland shark, which, yeah, they estimated this one to be 400 to 600 years old. Incredible. So, so I mean, and that was just like a year or two ago we found that out. So, as I say, very juvenile, our understanding, but it's also, it's hard to age a shark because they are separate from fish in that they are elasmobranchs, which means they don't have bones. Like fish are literally called bony fish. That's their family. So no uh, bones in the shark. They have no bones. They're made out of cartilage. 
And what that means is, is the way we age fish is there's a tiny little bone inside their ear called an otolith, which you use in like a tree. It sets down layers of calcium. It's a lot more complex than a shark because it doesn't have as, as, as hard a structure of one of those. So aging them is quite difficult, um, but it is possible. And that's how, how we're finding out things as technology improves. Okay. The, um, the sharks that you've had tagged and are monitoring around New Zealand, do they stick to New Zealand? Or do, are these true world ranges in terms of distance covered? Uh, all of the above. What was fantastic uh, when I did my PhD on blue sharks, they're known as a highly migratory species, uh, meaning they move you know, interjurisdictionally. Um, and the ones we tagged there, one of them went as far as the, the equator and then uh, came back. So like, this again hits with electromagnetic orientation. We think like it literally got to within a kilometer of the equator and right. like, turned okay. around and just fanged it back down south. Yeah, um, it's very rare to see any animal cross the equator other than birds, which is which is quite weird, I think. But um, the the sharks, the blue sharks, went all the way up through Polynesia in winter. That's what our sharks mainly do: white sharks, marker sharks, marlin, game fish. Everything generally goes up right now to the Polynesian islands. And then come February, you know, when, when the real East Australian current's pushing down, they all arrive in New Zealand. So they move a lot, but it generally uh, is relative to age. So small sharks stay coastal uh, yeah. because basically they try and avoid the big sharks. The deeper you go, the bigger the shit gets, basically. Yeah, yeah. So the, right now we've got a baby shark tagged called Swag, which is Jaws in reverse. The guy sponsored it, called it that, which is kind of cool because it couldn't be more reverse of course. than it. In Jaws, it's, it's literally three or four feet long, this thing. Yeah. And um, it was just attacked in, in Tauranga Harbour. It spent four months in Doubtless Bay, which is a bay that's only a kilometre or so wide. You know, it's a very small area. And uh, four months in there, it just spent there, which is like a little kindergarten. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, last week, it popped up at Port Waikato. So it, it's spending a lot of time coastally, which this species is. Great whites are a coastal species because they hunt things that are generally relative to the coast. Yeah. Versus, say, a blue shark, which hunts things out in the deep, deep open ocean like squid. Um, but great whites, when they get bigger, they migrate in order to conserve energy because they're only in the cold water to hunt cold water species like, like seals. When the seal pups dry up, they go up to the tropics to conserve the energy, brood their pups, come back down, drop them in our harbors for summer, and then uh -huh. go back down south to hunt again. What speed can they – I'll get off the these questions in just a moment and, and get uh, on to um... – that's good. It's like quick fire pub stuff. <laughs> yeah. So what sort of speed can they travel at? Uh, obviously, these the, there's, you know, the, the fast action that they need to chase down some, as you say, hard to get prey. Yeah. So I guess they're like a Tesla car. You put the foot on the gas and your eyeballs are oh, yeah, out, of, definitely. out of your head on acceleration. But yeah. um, obviously to range over long distances, a, a good consistent speed to get anywhere in any time is required. So how fast they get through the water yeah. normally? Well, they can cover like a hundred kilometers in a day. So it's pretty good speed. You know, it comes down to like, you know, one and a half, two meters a second, which is just, it'll just be their most efficient cruising speed. And it right. does look very cruisy, but when you try and swim with a shark that's in the ocean or a manta ray or something, you realize how crap we are at moving through the water. They are barely kicking and they're just flying. Yeah. Uh, and they literally are flying. Their, their hydrodynamic as a plane would be in the air. So um, they're very efficient. And what we learned through the blue shark stuff was like their dive patterns they use for efficient travel. So they'll actually like glide and that way they don't have to use any energy. They'll yeah. use like, the like natural... a descending aircraft. Exactly. Yeah. And, and then that way they don't have to 
use any energy to breathe as well because the oxygen's going for them. And then they'll swim up slowly and they'll glide again. And this is how we think they they rest as well because we don't know anything about shark sleep. Yeah, um, I'm just thinking about that right there. Yeah, so it was a theory for shark sleep, but they they thought that the the angle of trajectory is not efficient or the angle that you would expect if it was for efficient, you know, uh, movement for sleep. It right. seems more like you're landing on a plane. You're trying to get somewhere. Um, so, yeah. It, it, so maybe they don't even sleep. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah. I mean, we know that dolphins, for example, sleep by shutting off half their brain and swimming in circles, but they're guided by a, a dolphin that's awake. Oh. Sharks, don't, sharks don't hang out with mates like that. So... Yeah. I don't know there's got to be something there or they've just gone into a terminator mechanism that they just have figured it out you know so that they don't need sleep who knows how deep can they go uh depends on the species but our our blue sharks that we tagged went up to two kilometers deep wow. um that's a lot of pressure incredible. down there oh, a, lot, a of lot of pressure and and also cold like two degrees celsius yeah they're very sort of uh well hydrodynamic but I, I'm, I'm into airplanes and i relate to the beauty of aerodynamics they sort of have have that uh that, that beautiful shape you know oh definitely what's really cool having worked with blue sharks a lot is how i got into marco sharks a lot because you know you never have a lion and a tiger in the same niche because they're too similar yeah, yeah whereas like this is like having like like bears and wolves so those two can exist like the marco shark is the, the jet fighter right the blue shark is like the glider yeah. And there's such two different personalities. Like the blue shark's almost like a Dumbo because it hunts like squid. It's not, yeah. it doesn't have to be very smart. Yeah. Whereas the Marco is like a UFC fighter and yeah. it's just like on crack, you know, like there's these two <laughs> totally opposite <laughs> things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the way they're designed, you know, is exactly like two different airplanes, you know? Yeah. Um, which is quite cool. So yeah, they're, they're pretty amazing. Yeah, it's interesting the way that all the, all the jobs have been allocated, you know? Like, oh, okay, that sure. one does that, that one does that. And, you know, the crossover is not enough to cause issues between them. And Exactly. It's the beauty know. of evolution, you know, niche segregation. Um, yeah. You know, it's like if only gang members could figure this out, you know, and like <laughs> not, you know, they're not competing directly. But yeah, and so it varies, you know, how deep these animals go based on what they hunt. So the, the blue sharks going down that deep because uh, they feed on the deep scattering layer, which is like the tiny little lanternfish and the squid that migrate up at the nighttime and go back down in the daytime. So you see these beautiful dial vertical movements, but the deepest dives we think the sharks do is to kind of like reorientate and, and navigate, you know, because we, we think, and it makes sense, they use the bottom, the sea bottom as like, a, you know, as we do looking at land features to figure out where right. you are. But if it's super deep, you know, you're not going to go down to find it. Um so it's it's quite incredible, really, and 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 it shows the, the amazing capabilities of them. Because this obviously there's the pressure, but the temperature, the, the the temperatures these animals are ranging at the surface out there, it's 28 degree water in the tropics. Then they're going down to two degrees Celsius. Wow, at 2,000 meters deep. So it's quite incredible. All right, there seem to have been an uptick in stories regard shark attacks. You mentioned one earlier here in New Zealand, but particularly in Australia, and just in the last few weeks, I think one in, off the coast of Egypt, which was filmed, and and that was doing the rounds. The poor chap, yeah, yeah. Um, and he like disappeared. Um, is it my impression that there has been an uptick, or it just wasn't reported before? And if there has been, why? Yeah, I think there's a, a multitude of facets there. Okay, firstly, does a bear shit in the woods? Um, you know, with, with modern media, everything gets shared. Like before a guy could get eaten and there probably are people who do it, you know, in, in rare tropical Island areas and you don't even hear about it. 
But with social media, the internet, obviously everything kind of gets spread a lot quicker. That yeah. is a biased uptick of exposure to these events and sightings. Um, so that definitely has increased sightings. Uh, it's definitely increased the reports of incidents, but incidents themselves, have they gone up? No, definitely not. Okay. Statistically, that's been looked at. Um, our population has boomed. Our human population has boomed. And the amount of people going in the water has boomed. The amount of sharks has done anything but that. It's been declined. In fact, there's there's only 30% of the sharks now that there was 50 years ago. Give me a number on great whites. How many do we, do we think in total there are? It's very difficult to do census on that, but there are estimates based on genetics. So, for example, New Zealand and Southeast Australia is the same population, and there's estimated to be, I believe, three and a half to 5,000 great whites in total. Right. And only about 300 to 500 breeding adults okay so, oh wow okay so you, yeah you could imagine these animals only breed and have a couple pups every couple of years you you start killing a few of them like for example east australia is covered in drum lines and shark nets and killing programs um and this is an endangered animal you know you yeah. only need to start taking out a few to, to, to disrupt population growth or decline so um yeah long story short there seems to be more because we just like any information is spreading like wildfire through all the avenues we have with social media and the internet. Um, always look at the science. Science doesn't suggest sharks got more deadly at all. Um, but there are instances, I feel like the one you mentioned in Egypt, um, where we see, I believe, ecosystems being changed by us, whether we are removing their prey or making their environment more difficult to hunt in. Ultimately, we're jeopardizing the, the predation abilities of these animals. And like anything, you get a hungry animal, we get hangry. You know, uh, it may take an opportunity that it otherwise would not. That would be called a compromised predator. And those I do believe occur. Um, I've seen a hungry shark and it behaves a lot differently than a normal shark, just like I say, as people would. So I think we got to realize, you know, like a lot of the behaviors we see around us are catalyzed by the environments we create. So everything has an effect. Mm. Okay. Um, and um, I want to talk about human responses to sharks. Two things. First of all, when there has been a shark attack, it, seemed that it seems that people go into this mode where they've got to find the shark. They've got to kill the shark and then they have to display the shark like some sort of ritual. Yeah, well, just by sounding like that, if that actually happened accurately, you'd be like, sweet, that dangerous thing just got taken out. I don't have to worry about it anymore. You know, it's kind of like the dad turns on the light, gets the kid out of bed, makes him look under the bed. There's no boogeyman there. You're like, okay, now we can sleep. Unfortunately, it's very rare, if not impossible, to find a shark that, you know, bit someone. I always but wondered if, about that. Is yeah, that the that, actual shark? No, like sometimes they'll, I don't know how they get lucky, but they'll open them up and there is body parts in it um and then like look they do it with like bears that are misbehaving badly that come into cities they do it you know with lions with elephants but like at the end of the day 99 of those adverse encounters are created because humans have you know started inhabiting their hunting grounds have taken away their natural prey have removed forests to make farmland you know so we are the guilty ones in all of these and the ocean is where sharks live we don't live there we go play there so what is good is that that perspective has very much taken over from the Jaws perspective, which is it, it's not right to go kill a shark if it bites someone. 
it, they bite six people fatally globally every year, which is, to be honest, the least dangerous thing you yeah. can probably look around and see in your room. Pencils yeah. kill more people than that. So yeah. it, it's the fear and the, the, the jaws, to be honest, the, the terrified nature of a shark attack that just inflates the risk of it. Like you don't even think twice about getting in your car, but we know that's probably the most deadly thing in New Zealand, let alone the world. So well, if you had one in six chance of having a car accident in on earth, yeah, then you'd probably yeah. be happy about driving anytime. Totally. Um, uh, but it's that, it's that, it's a fear of the unknown when you're swimming and you can't see what's around you, you know, it's understandable. It's naive. Like, geez, if people like New Zealanders are some of the best in the world, at least to, to respect the wild. I say to people, the shark is the ground to the skydiver, the cold to the mountaineer. It's the wild aspect of nature that makes it thrilling. Yeah. And um, you can't control that. You know, if Edmund Hillary was like, we got to control all avalanches, you'd like mm. go to a ski slope. Remove all unstable snow. Yeah. Like you wouldn't be a mountaineer. You'd go, yeah. you'd be on a ski slope, which is why we do that on a ski slope, you know, but we can't do it with wild animals. So, that's why I really try and um, communicate what sharks are about, more so their value, but also the ability to interact with them should you find yourself in that position. Okay. Now, if you're out on the surfboard, let's say, you know, off the coast of Papamoa or somewhere like that, yeah. and and something catches your eye, and, and quite often if you're looking at um, the water, things can look a bit bigger, can't they? They can be magnified. So, And you realize it's a shark. And it's yeah. in your vicinity. What do you do? How do you handle yourself? Yeah, there's multi tiers here. Like, firstly, understand your environment. Like, ignorance is bliss, but it's completely, you know, disrespectful when it comes to a wild environment or wild animals. You you wouldn't just walk out and play tennis in the savannas. And if you got eaten by a lion, people would call you an idiot. You know, and and everyone would agree on that. That's effectively what we're doing with sharks. So. I say, understand your environment. We're like, don't go surfing around a seal colony dressed up looking like a seal and acting like the slowest moving seal. But that is where most shark attacks with great whites happen. Now, if you're in New Zealand and you're at Papamo, like you say, the most common species of shark we see in the water is a bronze whaler, which eats crabs and stingrays and small oh, fish. Oh, so you're not on the menu. No, not at all. And so understanding that, like when I see bronze whalers, I go... Okay, I know what that is, but I will still get out of the water because I don't find it very comfortable to see, you know, a fin here and then it's over there and I can't keep track of it and I don't have a mask. Uh, I don't want to put it in a position to make a mistake, so I'll respectfully get out. Um, and doing that in a calm fashion because I know it's not going to like want to get me, but if you start splashing, you encourage the kitten to the wool. Right. You know, yeah. any predator will go, ooh. And it's it's majority of the time the danger is it can't see you. So it's going on other instincts like vibration. So at the end of the day, if you see something that makes you uncomfortable, like in any situation, get out of it in as safe as possible manner you can. If you want to interact with the shark, the safest way to do it is by appreciating their rules of engagement, which number one is eye contact. Now, I only ever swim with sharks in clear water and with a mask on. So you can look at them, see them, engage with them, measure them, react to them, and show that you're an equal predator. When you're on a surfboard, you're doing the entire opposite. You're sitting out of the water, half in, dangling these white little feet yeah. in the water that look like fish and murky water with your heart rate up, splashing around. You know, you couldn't be worse. But 
that is the risk you're willing to take if you want to go have fun surfing or swimming. Yeah. And and then it's about calculating that in areas where there's not uh, opportunity for adverse interactions, which is why, you know, surfing at river mouths after floods where people fillet their fish at dusk, you're adding up all these layers. But at the end of the day, the shark is the most polite predator on earth. Like, again, when you look at the number of adverse interactions versus how many of us go and play tennis above them in the savannah, so to speak, you would not get away with that if we did that with tennis in the savannah, the lions, I can guarantee it. So um, I think it's about education, understanding, respect. But look, people want the juicy bit, which is if a shark does come up and bite something around you or get near you, whacking it in the nose does work. Uh, poking it in the eye and the gills, basically doing anything that tells it that you're not what it thought it was and it made a mistake and it gets right. out of it. Okay. Um, that is why, in a graphic example, a great white shark doesn't bite something, chew on it and like eat it. It hits it across the legs to sever a major artery and let it bleed out and die so it can come back in 20 minutes and eat it. Right. That's what that's what it does to a seal because it it's trying to hunt a dog that swims with teeth. You know what I mean? they got claws and can take out a shark's eye. And if they lose an eye, they can't hunt. They can't survive. They die. So they're very risk averse sharks. Okay. Um, I remember when I was in the States uh, years ago, going on a flight on the Goodyear blimp of all things, the Goodyear blimper above <laughs> Pompano beach in Florida. Yeah. And we were just, you know, the blimp doesn't fly fast about 30 miles an hour or something. We're going along people swimming in the water. And I see all these things going round and round and round about 10, maybe 20 meters off the beach. And I and we're, we're about 1,000 or well, 700 feet. And I asked the pilot, I said, what the hell are they down there? And he said, hammerhead sharks. There would have been about three or four or 500 of them. And people were still swimming in the water, you know, not too far away from them. I'll never forget that. Um, they weren't looking for people, obviously. Yeah, well, I mean, there you go, case in point. If sharks ate people, there's three or four hundred sharks. There'd be three or four hundred people dead because we're pretty easy to catch, you know. Yeah. Um, and and yet, it has been a very slow transition for people to realize that. And I think a really important message to sum up a lot of what we talked about is the fact that I say to people, as someone who got into sharks because I was scared of them as a surfer, and has now traveled the world studying them. I've swum with every single species of shark without a cage. Um, well, I without still, a cage. Yeah, yeah, it's it's my specialty because it shows people that you know rather than you just seeing people and sharks together, I'm swimming with them. It shows people sharks don't eat people on purpose. Um, is is that I say to people, I'm still afraid of sharks. It's it's okay to to fear sharks. You should, in fact, fear a shark. You should fear a bear. You should fear a lion, because that's natural instinct and it keeps you alive. The, the key thing to understand is, is how you respond to that fear. And that should be through respect. It should be through an understanding. It should be through perhaps avoidance of a risk you don't want to take. It should not be reacted to through malice, like the Jaws generation showed us, which was if you fear it, go kill it. A good shark is a dead shark. We have luckily through knowledge and education come a long way. And that is to understand that sharks are the apex predator of the ocean. They keep trophic food webs in balance and intact and healthy and functioning. And we get half the oxygen we breathe from the phytoplankton at the bottom of that food chain. We get a yeah. third of the world's food from the fish populations, which they control. So respect is definitely what sharks deserve. Okay. And I know you've done 
um, media, you know, uh, filming and programs for you know, some of the big names. And you just told us that you've swum with sharks without a cage. You must have captured some amazing images of telling those stories. And also, what's it like being right next to one? <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, my trajectory of work has, has been a dream. Like, I grew up watching Edinburgh, Irwin, you know, and I thought, man, imagine that for a job. And this is, again, why I speak at school schools all around the country, is to tell that story about following your passion and and if you do that, you know, with, coupled with hard work, you can succeed, especially in a rare avenue like I have. And and some would say, oh, it's because people are smart enough not to swim with sharks for a living. But um, I've found it exhilarating. No one doesn't like going and seeing wild animals, let alone swimming with one of the most feared ones. And yeah, it took a transition through time and more important knowledge and having good mentors. Um but it definitely becomes an, it became an addiction in the sense of any thrilling sport, I think, or pursuit. But like I said before, I, yeah, it's shit scary when you're about to get in the water with some of the biggest and deadliest sharks on earth, quotation marks. Um, you know, but you, you calculate it. People say, oh, my goodness, that's so risky. You ask my wife or friends, I'm one of the most risk-averse, anal retentive, Take every box and make sure I'm wearing every seatbelt kind of person. I didn't even take up my wife's offer to go skydiving. She bought me the ticket. I didn't do it. You know, so so as as you would say to a doctor, how do you do open heart surgery? You know, he learned how to do it. She learned how to do it. I learned how to swim with sharks. And and it is indescribable. And it is a reason why shark ecotourism has has boomed, because you can do it safely if you get taught how. I would never recommend someone to go jump in with a shark. It'd be disrespectful. You learn from pros, you do it with ecotourism operators, and it will change your life instantly. My license plate under the bottom of Sharkman says fear to fascination, because as soon as you roll in to the water, the very first time you realize they don't have any interest in you. And then you're just in awe of this amazing predator we described earlier. And no matter which species, yep. people start traveling the world to do it. And, and I've dedicated my life to it. And my job now is making Shark Week shows for Discovery Channel, which you know, three to 400 million people around wow. the world watch. Like we don't see it that much in New Zealand, which is a shame because not many people have Sky these days to watch Discovery Channel. But it, Shark Week is the most popular and long-running TV series in the world. And Gosh. it is okay. an incredible opportunity for a little guy down here in New Zealand to, to be on these major shows, but more so an incredible opportunity to, to be a voice for sharks that don't have a voice. And look, Shark Week has a spectrum of shows, don't get me wrong, because America has a spectrum of people. Yeah. And it ranges from people doing jackass, literally Shark Week shows, to the ones I try and do, which are, are naturally adventurous, adventurous, you know, hitting a real issue, using real science, but you know, putting yourself out there in a, an environment like, for example, Norfolk Island, I did a show where they dump their, their, their cattle that die in droughts into the ocean and Dozens of tiger sharks turn up every year to eat them. And we were trying to learn what happens if they stop doing that. And will these tiger sharks become dangerous? And it was a fascinating show and an incredible environment. And yeah, it was kind of sketchy when we jumped in for the first time, surrounded by 20 tiger sharks eating cows. But, <laughs> you know, at the end, the sharks wanted nothing to do with me. And it was it was truly incredible. But um, yeah, there's been a few sketchy encounters. But, um, you know. That's what happens when you do go play tennis a little bit in the savannas for too long, I think. Yeah. You, you come back to where they were and all you see is a couple of tennis rackets. Yeah, exactly. Where, where are the people? 
they yeah. seem to disappear. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and look, landscapes change. And that is, you know, what I'm immersed in right now. Great White showing up in the Bay Plenty to bring this home, you know, this conversation is that uh, that can be risky. The way you avoid risk is you understand it. And yeah. ultimately, it's their home. We can coexist with it. We're seeing we're doing that in California and East Australia through science. And uh, that information takes away people's fear. And it enables you to then continue to enjoy the ocean and not resent the things that are in it just because you didn't look under the bed to see if it was actually there. Next time you have an encounter with a shark, if it gets a little funny, you can say, do you know who you're talking to? I'm a shark man. Ah, <laughs> oh, I've got enough respect to realise that won't carry much weight. With I, I am your advocate. <laughs> Go easy. No, just joking there. Uh, well, no, been... that would that would be forgetting where you are, as my dad says. Yeah. So never forget where we are. Look both ways, because at the end of the day, that bus is going to get you way more than a shark. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah I've yeah. learned that lesson. Well, it's been really interesting speaking with you, Dr. Riley Elliott, marine biologist and. Um, people can follow the tracks of, of those great whites by going to suggest, I mentioned Facebook. Are there any other places? Probably a website. Yeah. the website. And, and how, how often does the data update? So you can yeah. see the progression. Um, there's an app that we've got out in the app stores. It's, it's on Google play. Uh, it's coming out on Apple called the great white app. Um, we've only got the one shark going right now, but that's because, uh, well, the floods this summer made it incredibly hard to find sharks. They vacated as much as we wish we could. Right. Um, but this summer, I'll get a bunch more out there, and uh, you can you can get the app, or you can look at for for free on sustainableoceanssociety.co.nz, which is a charity I set up with some mates to uh, help you know gather funds and 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 generate the, the funding for these projects. So uh, yeah, and and my Facebook's out there, the Life of Riley NZ on Instagram. I mean, Life it's pretty easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's. Yeah, <laughs> It's what the dream's been. It's been lovely, but I am grateful for it. I realize I live in a, in a place in the world which is magical, which is what comes with the responsibility to share it with, with, with New Zealanders and the world. The passion comes through. It really does. And, yeah. um, and, and people like that. So that's great. I was just thinking without committing our marketing department, I'm not doing that, but it would be good to have a tag, RCR tag, because yeah. then we would, every time they saw that shark, we'd get a little bit of promotion. Yeah. Well, that's what a lot of corporates I would have thought picked up but um to be honest mazda was the only one that did it um and and i think to be frank they got out competed by the the new zealanders i, I was surprised how quickly within two weeks we got 20 tag sponsored and i've probably had 50 people again everyday new zealanders uh wanting to to, to sponsor more tags but i think what this reflects and i used to say this and and, and it actually stuck was the shark science approach I have made has been relative to what America's Cup used to be, which right. was how amazing Kiwis are, where we yep. can band together the small little pieces to make something magnificent. Unfortunately, they just screwed that up, Grant Dalton. But, uh, you know, <laughs> that's oh, well. business, I guess. But it yeah, used ultimately. to be a great metaphor, and it still exists in the shark funding world. So I plan to do more. Uh, I plan to expose more to Kiwis, and I think it's in all our best interests when it comes to great white sharks, and, and, and I love to play in the ocean. Well, great to speak with you. Thanks so much. And I'm sure if people didn't catch the whole conversation, they can catch up on our replays. We'll keep an eye on what's happening. Thanks for your time. It was a great conversation. Thank you for having me. Cheers. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.